Hey, before we start the show, we wanted to let you know that due to the nature of the movies that we're talking about this week, we do touch on some topics regarding sensuality and sexuality and sexual assault. We don't get explicit and we don't get into detail on those topics, but we do touch on them and we felt it would be good for you to know before we got into the episode. Hello and welcome to Rewatch. My name is Seth Scruggs. And I'm Zachary Vaughn. And this is the show about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet. Zach, we're back. We're back, Again. that's right. Um, and this week we are talking about two movies about crime and people on the run. Crime duos. Crime duos. I guess um, not just duos, though. No. No, not just duos. But crime couples. Crime couples. Indeed. Um we're gonna we're gonna switch things up a little bit. So usually we talk about the movie that you chose first. Is uh, that a specific thing that we're we do intentionally? Well, for every episode this season we have talked about your choice first. Oh wow. I didn't I've, notice that. I've done that intentionally. Oh, okay. Um, as as the host of the show uh just trying to i'm trying to uh be deferential and kind i appreciate that and and so i want to i always want to let you you talk about what you want to talk about first except this week um and this week we're talking uh, and that's that's for a very specific reason uh so the movies for this week are bonnie and clyde and thelma and louise you probably know that if you looked at the title of this episode if you didn't and you're just listening to us that's no awesome matter what we put out that's welcome great. uh please let us know if that's what you're doing yeah send us send us a dm we will do thank, something we will thank you we will thank you personally uh <laughs> you might not um, get any free swag because i don't think we have any swag yeah in order to give away free things we have to have things yeah to give away um this week, though, we're going to flip things up for a specific reason, and we're going to talk about Bonnie and Clyde first, and then we're going to talk about Thelma and Louise, uh, mainly because I think that Bonnie and Clyde is going to give us a good foundation to talk about Thelma and Louise um, and kind of what they're doing in that movie. So, Bonnie and Clyde, if you don't know, is the 1967 uh, movie about Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow, the uh, famous uh, heads of the Barrow gang from the 30s. stars Warren Beatty as Clyde Barrow and Faye Dunaway as Bonnie Parker. Uh, Arthur Penn directed this film, and uh, importantly, Warren Beatty also produced it. So I got to say this. Just a, a little side note at the start. I know there are a lot of people who direct, act, produce, and write and stuff, all of their own stuff. That's insane. But as a as a an independent film producer, I know just how hard and stressful it is to just do that. And as a bad actor, I know just how hard acting is. So I can't imagine yeah. doing both of those, even just the two the two things. Yeah, watching this movie again, I found it hard to focus on the movie that was happening, and rather I was thinking a lot more about the role that this movie has in film history and kind of how it's influenced people that have come after it like what it means as a work not necessarily what it means is like a what it means in the history of filmmaking not just the film itself um so i want to talk a little bit about that but i want to hear your thoughts on the movie first so my thoughts ranged very far i don't know not not far from like extremes of the same spectrum it just jumped back and forth 
between different things because like right off the bat i was like wow that's a lot of skin for 1967 the movie if you don't know opens Uh, with a long shot in which faye dunaway is topless and very creatively covered Mm -hmm. for um probably about minute and a half an eternity um what feels like an eternity it felt it it was yeah um it kind of it kind of felt like never mind that's a tangent uh <laughs> but it's, it's too early to say that we're done with the conversation um uh, yeah i i think your your note about it being in, an interesting choice for 1967 is something i'm, I'm we'll come back to like it's so, it's not it's not yeah we'll come back to that we'll we'll definitely be coming back to it um, um with some of the stuff that i want to talk about but yeah i mean i guess for a lot of the beginning um like the first 30 minutes just had, I don't know, maybe not the first, the first 10 minutes had a lot of, uh, first of all, skin, but also um, sensuality and suggestiveness mm-hmm. that I was not prepared for. Yeah. Um, and it just, it caught me very off guard because I'm like, wow, this is, this is shortly after a color film <laughs> came to be. <laughs> Um, I also wasn't aware that it was rated R, which right. is right. on me because I'm a grown boy who can look that up, but also doesn't have to. It's also right there when you click play on HBO Max. It's right above. I did the, not notice that. I was watching right it was, above the play button. It was it was late at night, <laughs> and I was on my desktop. Oh, okay. So I was, yeah. Um, the best way to watch this movie, as as Arthur Penn intended, exactly. Yeah, uh, the he didn't he didn't know, but he knew. The only better way would be to watch it just straight up on your phone. Oh yeah, like in an airport using like wireless Bluetooth earbuds. I I think that's exactly the viewing experience that Arthur it's, Penn yeah. had in mind. Um, got that stereo sound. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so it went from that to pretty much, it was pretty dry from then on. Um, they talk about it and there's a, an off camera sex scene later on, but, um, that was one thing to me that felt really strange, strange looking back is that it was so heavy in that for the first 10 minutes and then pretty much nothing for the rest of it. Um, I have in one of my notes that uh, whoever wrote this, whether it was multiple, was this multiple writers? Yeah, it was two co-writers and then like a script doctor. Okay. In a situation. Uh, Whoever did the majority of Bonnie's writing uh, was absolutely a guy with a fantasy. Uh, Like I get this is real. Like I get it's based on a true story, but like, she didn't have to be like that. <laughs> uh, she could have been. I thought. I thought she was pretty unrealistic. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna give more general thoughts, and we can break down the more specifics later. Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was good. I feel like it was. Real, it was it was exactly opposite paced as it should have been. Too, too slow. Too, too fast when day. it should have been slower, oh, and okay. too slow when it should have been faster. Um, like they skipped over things, like they ran right through things that I feel like could have uh, could have benefited from more time spent, uh, more deliberation, and then they really sat and basked in stuff that I thought could have just been kind of brushed over. Gotcha. Um, and I was really thrown off because I thought that the inciting incident, not the inciting. I, I thought, I thought the break into act two was 10 minutes in. Right. right. Uh, which it was not because that's when he for- commits the first crime on screen, but that's not when he kills the person. And that's the break into act two. Cause that's the, yeah. 
oh boy, we're really doing this. So, so the, are the, those are your more general thoughts? Or That's my more general thoughts. Yeah. 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 I think I, I talked with you about this. I texted you while I was watching it and it, another prime example of how it was meant <laughs> to be watched. Um, but I, it, I likened it to watching something like Pulp Fiction or another, like when I hear people talk about Pulp Fiction, it's like, man, I hadn't seen anything like that in a theater before. I, it was mind blowing. It was groundbreaking. And I've seen Pulp Fiction and it's, it's fine. I think there are better Quentin Tarantino movies. Mm-hmm. Um, than than Pulp Fiction, and so it it didn't have that same effect on me. And I think it's because I was I spent I watched all these other movies that were influenced by Pulp Fiction before I watched Pulp Fiction. And I think that there's a little bit of that with Bonnie and Clyde, where this movie came out in '67. We've spent fifty some odd years watching all these other movies that were. Uh, influenced by bonnie and clyde and so the violence and and i think that as on the second viewing even more so for me that final scene held up the editing in that final scene for me is probably the best part of the entire movie um yeah i I thought that was really good too and so but all of these people even were taking those pieces and building on them because that's how we make things is we take the stuff that we like, we build on them. And so we've spent 50 years watching things that built on this movie. Every, you know, we're going to talk about Thelma and Louise, very indebted to Bonnie and Clyde. Well, even uh, you mentioned the editing in the last scene, the editing throughout this movie was a, a, a bit ahead of its time it started right. this this one really started uh the quick cut editing that hadn't really been done before i learned uh that's a detail i learned from college um <laughs> but because before that there were pretty much longer more lingering shots and yeah there are some of those in this but this is much more edited to a pace right not just it, it it's edited for its for itself not edited because you're watching theater on screen which it wasn't quite theater on screen at that point even right. but it was there, still it, it was still working its way away from that right so i want to talk about the film history about around this film and I want to nerd out about that. But do you want to talk more about the specifics of the film first? We can. I know right. uh, one one cool detail I, I read about it was um, the shot that is the that starts the break into Act 2 is the first time you see a gunshot and the person get hit by that gunshot right. in film history. Mm-hmm. A lot of squibs which are exploding blood packets mm-hmm. were used um and this was the first movie that I mean, i'm sure they'd been used here and there before but this is one of the first movies that really took advantage of that technology. well specifically specifically in the same shot right where right. you see the gun that hits the guy like you see the gunfire and it hits the guy in the same shot right right that's the first one um but yeah they used a lot of squibs in this a lot of squibs. Uh, I think so. So from from the beginning, I had issues with it, uh, which makes it sound like I hated it a lot more than I did. Um, I really thought, like, we have no idea what kind of person Bonnie is. It starts, and by the time she meets Clyde, all we know is that up until this point, she was naked. Right. Her That's meeting, all we know about her. Her meeting with Clyde is the first thing that happens in this movie. Yeah. Which it, it 
like I, I, she's supposed to be this like, oh, I'm, I'm stuck in this small town. I'll never get out. Blah blah blah. Woe is me. But you don't get any of that before she just starts acting on that, and so it feels like, oh wow, this is just, this is just some guy that you met. Why are you all over him already? Right, and I. To counter to that, like I think that there's some cognitive dissonance that they're trying to play with there where they're trying to point out like she's going to say one thing, but really there's like this burning desire inside that's that's going to come out and whether or not that comes across is a is another thing. But I, I had a different reaction to that than you did, which was she's. She's not everything that he thinks that she is and that we think that she is, is was my impression and my take on that. Um, when, you know, we we see, I think that us seeing her nude in her room, that that's a key statement of who she is. Yeah. She's standing by the window. She goes up and she sees the guy and she knows what state of dress or undress she is in mm-hmm. and specifically chooses to do that. And so I think, I think there's more than meets the eye. It's more than just small town girl running off with some guy. So you're saying it's more, it's not necessarily that as much as like, maybe she's, I don't know, like more, less, less naive than we think she is. Yeah. Like she's yeah. just like she's not really an instigator in it, but definitely a uh, a driver. I I think so, and and I don't know if that's an intention of the screenwriter, of the director, or just in the way that Dunaway plays her. But my impression is she's got a lot more going on under the surface. Mm-hmm. You know she. Earlier, she hints at it, and the real-life Bonnie actually ended up running away with a guy before she met Clyde. She mm. ran away with this guy and then came back, and they divorced, and there was this whole thing. And I think that I feel like Dunaway's playing on that a little bit, that her Bonnie is, whether or not all of that stuff happened to her Bonnie within the world of the movie, she's playing on that stuff to say, to make Clyde kind of do what she wants to do and to manipulate him a little bit Mm -hmm. just as much as he's trying to manipulate her. Right. They're playing each other. She's not just being taken advantage of. Right. I I think to me, that's a key. That was a key dynamic for me understanding their, like their interaction in the movie is that she's playing him just as much as he's playing her. I can see that. One of the things that bothered me, and I guess it's not too unrealistic based on how, especially with that mindset of they're kind of playing each other, um, pushing each other, trying to trying to win against each other. Uh, how when whenever they would go somewhere, they would announce their full names and. <laughs> right what they've done and like obviously that's a dumb thing to do but how unrealistic is it if they're trying to win if they're trying to play each other then obviously they're going to be like oh hey yeah guess what we did because that's like it's it's setting up more danger it's setting up more reputation to be like i'm i'm better than you and they hint at it again in the movie with the poem that bonnie writes these people don't care if they if they die right they they are much like the movie is aware of like this inevitable conclusion of a gruesome death bonnie and clyde are aware of it and and that was something i liked about the movie is that they're going to be reckless and they're not going to care because either they they get the score or they go down in a blaze of glory and everyone knows their name, which they went down in a blaze of glory and everyone knows their name. Yeah. 
I want to jump into the film history about this because I want to be a nerd if if you'll allow me. Um, Seth, I read... this is your bread and butter. So <laughs> this this is the first time this season really that I've been able to jump in to this kind of stuff. This is your okay so moment. Go okay, for it. so uh, <laughs> earlier this year, I read um, a book called Pictures at a Revolution by a guy named Mark Harris. And the the point of the book, and, and this is where I was kind of alluding to talking about the opening of the film. The point of the book is that he's kind of talking about how the 1967 Best Picture Slate, which is what a nerdy thing, but that best picture slate kind of shows this Hollywood that's trying to figure out what it's going to be and what it wants to be. And so on one hand you have Bonnie and Clyde and the graduate and in the heat of the night is kind of in that category, but especially Bonnie and Clyde and the graduate, which have these really transgressive sexual norms this really transgressive um, editing style and young people in the center of the frame and all of these new ideas about what it means to be American and what it, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, the movie is incredibly anti-establishment. And as much as these characters are based on these people from the 1930s and 40s or 1930s they're just as much like hippies and countercultural revolutionaries from the 60s in in this rendition of them and and then the other side of the that revolution film wise is something like Dr. Doolittle a very bloated over the top roadshow musical and guess who's coming to dinner which features Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy in this very theatrical version of of a movie. And it was shot very traditionally on a sound stage for, you know, four hours a day because that's all Spencer Tracy could do. And, you know, versus this like on location in Texas thing that um the Bonnie and Clyde is doing. And and I think that's where we get into the whole thing about it being surprising for 1967. It's, it is, but it isn't because they're hitting on something deeper and they're drawing a lot from the, the French new wave. Um, so the original director that they wanted for this film was Francois Truffaut, who is known for something like the 400 blows, um, which is very popular in France and among these like young artists in the 19 uh, late 1950s and 60s uh, Jean-Luc Godard was also on that list of people that they wanted he made Breathless which Breathless and Bonnie and Clyde have a very similar sensibility they're very much drawing on Breathless when they're making Bonnie and Clyde um, and Warren Beatty is trying to mold himself into a star. And he realizes in the mid sixties, he's not getting the roles he wants because he's not in charge of the movies that he's making. And so you have all of that kind of bubbling to the surface in Bonnie and Clyde, but it takes some interesting turns, like starting the movie with a topless woman. Like that's a, that's a choice that says we're not part of the establishment. You know, this is kind of before indie movies were a thing. Um, those started really coming 70s, 80s, and really in the 90s. It, this is still a studio picture. It's still produced by Warner Brothers. And I think that there are moments in this where that comes into play. Where something like Breathless which is shot in a certain way out of necessity. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde is picking up and using those same things, but as a stylistic thing, but then like certain, certain scenes are look straight out of something from the fifties. 
And so there's something interesting at odds within that. And I'm not sure if any of this is coherent, but I'm just going to rant about the history here. <laughs> but so I, they're opening the film and they're saying, we're not, we're, we're way more like Breathless and we're way more like 400 Blows and we're way more like Godard and Truffaut than we are that other movie that you saw that you didn't like because it wasn't hip enough or it wasn't cool enough or it wasn't up to the times enough. And, and it's interesting where this is one of Jack Warner's last movies with Warner brothers who's, and he's like this old guard figure and he hated this movie, hated it, tried to bury it, tried to get it out. Uh, There's a great story where, uh, Jack Warner's office, when you looked out the window, you could see the Warner Brothers Tower. And what he loved to do was when someone would disagree with him, he'd point at the water tower, the very famous water tower, and he would say, whose name is on that tower? And he was in a meeting with Warren Beatty, and Warren Beatty looked at it and he said, it might be your name, but it's got my initials, which is a just a great thing. What a power move. Right. And from this young guy who's, this is his first producer credit. This is his first movie that he's producing. Um, so, so there's all of this interesting stuff happening. I think that's why it feels a little bit scattered. Stylistically, I think that it's because it's still bridging that gap of really established studio filmmaking. You know, there a lot of the interiors, there's certain things like jibs are used, like cranes are used. Never would have happened if it was like a quote unquote true French New Wave film that goes against the that structure. And but Warren Beatty then positions himself like interestingly as an impotent limp character. And so he's kind of saying, Yeah, I'm gonna be a movie star, I'm not gonna be the traditional movie star. I'm not going to be that perfect all-American guy. And and he doesn't. And he makes all sorts of weird choices throughout his career that we we can't get into. Um, but yeah, that's it's at a very, very interesting spot in film history. And I don't know if you've seen The Graduate. I haven't yet. Um, but again, it bridges that gap in a very interesting way. I think a little bit more successfully... I think a little bit better at trying to get what I, I think the biggest thing for me is that Bonnie and Clyde doesn't necessarily feel like it has something to say about these characters, about the place that they represent. It it does a little bit. It wants to recontextualize them as these countercultural sixties hippie characters, almost not quite hippies, but countercultural characters but i feel like it doesn't have a lot to say about what they did or why they did it whereas something like the graduate feels feels like it carries a lot more weight because it feels like it knows what it wants to say about what its character is doing and it taps into something very 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 specific about what kids were going through at that time that i think bonnie and clyde doesn't and then i think that you know, if we're going to talk about, I won't talk about all of these, but like in the heat of the night brings in something more in a more political sense and a much more um, race centered sense that um, Bonnie and Clyde doesn't really capture. Well, that was a lot on, on that. But it was good. Uh, And it was cool seeing you gush (laughs) about all of the film history nerd stuff that you know (laughs) it's it's really interesting but again like to talk about this movie as a movie for a second all of that stuff is what was going through my head in this movie and i didn't feel like i zeroed in on this on the movie itself and i think that's something why i think something like the graduate is a little bit more successful for me is i feel like i can tap into what the movie is trying to say Way more than I can in in Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Do you have any any 
things that you want to say to wrap this segment up and then we'll talk into, we'll jump into Thelma and Louise. I mean, so I, this was my first watch of Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Uh, which means as usually how it works with this podcast, I had already seen Thelma and Louise. <laughs> um, so as I was watching this, one of the things that I was noticing was a lot of similarities. Right. Obviously that's, that's right. one of the things I noticed the most was how many similarities there were. Um, but also, and this is going to set us up for Thelma and Louise. I think Thelma and Louise did it better. Okay. Well, yeah, let's jump in to Thelma and Louise then. Uh, if you're interested about any of the stuff that I talked about, Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood. It's a really well-written book. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and jump into Thelma and Louise. Hey, what's up? This is Seth Scruggs, host of Rewatch, that show that you're listening to right now. And if you like this show, there's also a good chance that you would like our YouTube channel. You can find it, Mark Spots the X Productions, on YouTube. There's a link in our show notes. And over there, we have short films and behind the scenes content and a bunch of other stuff that we have planned for the rest of this year. You can go over there and subscribe. That really helps us out and helps other people find our work. And if you like this show and you want to help other people find our work, you can follow the show, give us a review and a rating, and that really helps other people find our work as well. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. And Zach, I'm just going to toss it straight to you to talk about Thelma and Louise. All right. So Thelma and Louise was my pick and what a pick it was. <laughs> uh, it, it's a 1991 uh, directed by the one and only Ridley Scott written by Callie Corey uh, with Susan Sarandon as Louise and Gina Davis as Thelma. Now, do I know which one is which in the movie? I do not. Did I enjoy the movie? I did, but I'm going to continue with telling you what this movie is about. Harvey Keitel is also in it um, and Michael Madsen. Uh, but this is, in a way, the, and I'm going to show my bias, this is the uh, female and more developed, more character-rich <laughs> version of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, you have this stifled, abused, uh housewife who kind of breaks wild with her uh her best friend who's a waitress only after they uh are on their way to a vacation and louise one of them uh starts uh dancing with a guy at a bar that they stop at and Thelma. Thelma, Thelma is the is the one that you're looking for. This is gonna happen this entire section. <laughs> um Thelma starts dancing with this guy, gets drunk, he brings her outside uh and is about to rape her when Louise, haha, because it's the other one, uh Louise intervenes and ends up shooting him killing him uh and thus they are off uh running from the law finding yeehaw brad pitt um and uh yeah thelma throughout learns to relax a bit more and louise learns thelma learns to relax maybe a little bit too much a little bit too much and louise learns uh that uh there are consequences to her and thelma's actions uh yeah and they drive off a cliff at the end spoiler we spoil i mean that's that's the show yeah it 
basically Thelma and Louise is what you get if you take Bonnie and Clyde and shove it through the filter of a 1980s action movie. Yeah. It's basically what it is. As especially when you get into the story structure stuff, which I'm sure that Zach wants to talk about. I'm all about the story structure. <laughs> like you read like you've read books on uh film history. I've read books on screenwriting and story structure. <laughs> and this is actually a perfect counter, not counter, compliment to your knowledge on Bonnie and Clyde because Thelma and Louise has been an example that I, uh, a prominent example that I've read about for story structure and characters. The story structure, the reason that I say that about the 1980s action movies is that especially 1980s action movies, for some reason there is such a not strict in the sense that like it's formulaic though there's some of that but strict in the sense that it hits the beats and it hits them right where it needs to so story structure and i'll let you talk a little bit more about this if you want to but if you're not familiar like the idea behind story structure, number one, anything that we talk about story structure wise, we're applying after the fact. I don't, we don't know exactly how the writers thought about it as they were writing, but we can look at it and say, this is this, this follows this structure because we expect something out of stories as, as human beings listening. And I may have talked about this before on the podcast, but we expect something out of the stories that we watch and so and and experience and so when we are given a story we expect certain things to happen at certain times in the story and when it doesn't happen that feels off it's the reason that you might say Bonnie and Clyde feels slow or too fast in some places because it's not hitting the beats when you feel like it should be hitting the beats um, and sometimes that can be good. Sometimes breaking that structure can be really good and have good results. Other times it doesn't. Um, but Thelma and Louise is very honed in to the beats are very clear. The story structure, the characters, wants and desires, everything is very, very clear in, in this movie. Yeah. So everybody, the, the, the most, prolific alt writers like charlie kaufman um and some other like independent they don't usually direct as much as just focus on writing will say like oh no i don't follow structure i don't do this but like in writing movies in order for it to be an interesting story with compel with a compelling narrative and compelling characters, there is a level of at least similarity that it has to hit because otherwise it's not interesting. Otherwise it's not a story. It's not a story. It's it's people maybe doing things. Um like if if so Bonnie and Clyde starts with stifled housewife Thelma you're, you're Thelma and Louise, not Bonnie and Clyde. Sorry. Yes. Thelma and Louise. Gosh, <laughs> so many, so many ampersands. So many ampersands. Um, Thelma and Louise starts with stifled housewife Thelma, who wants excitement. Um, if she and Louise went on their vacation, went to the cabin, went fishing, came back. That's not interesting. So she right. had a good time. Right. Uh, but instead, what happens? They go and they stop at a bar because, you know what? Let's live a little. They have a good time. Thelma's getting what she wants. And then she almost gets raped. And that's not what she wants. And that sets off consequences that project them 
full force into the rest of the movie where they then have to make other decisions uh, to decide, all right, are we going to turn ourselves in? Well, no, because we didn't need to kill him when we killed him. All right, so we're going to keep running. Well, we need money. How are we going to get money? And all of the complications ensue. And that's what makes it interesting. So you can you can talk about, oh, I don't write with, with formula, but at the same time, formula kind of follows a good story. And the reason the reason we have formulas and people talk about like people talk down about formula formulas fine when it's when it's not formulaic which is dumb uh like well there's a difference between writing to a structure and being lazy yes and so you can write to these beats and you can move them around and you can play with it And, and there's the the thing about being able like knowing the rules in order to break the rules the people someone like charlie kaufman knows the rules he knows what structure is yeah and he follows it until he doesn't want to Mm -hmm. art he breaks it to mess with you art without any form is not art it's just chaos like if you if you have a white canvas and you are to and you are to take a red paint a, a paintbrush and some red paint and you were to draw a circle and you were to tell people that is a tree everyone would say no it is not because it has absolute it has absolutely nothing it has no, no similarities form. to a tree it's it's a red circle if you were to tell people this is a red circle they'd say yes it is um but like you can't art it's it's just it's it's not it doesn't work without order so you can you can make it less interesting by not following it by not following story or you can make it make absolutely no sense by not following structure um most of the time when people follow structure too much it leads to boring and predictability but you can always throw in reasonable twists and enricher characters to make it new and fresh and to make it not feel formulaic because characters make decisions people make decisions and as long as they're following the character and the characters are doing things being active and growing in some way whether positively or negatively you're going to have an interesting compelling story um and I guess I'm not just talking about Thelma and Louise anymore. Um, but in Thelma and Louise, they're making they're making their decisions. And so you start with, ooh, I'm letting loose Thelma, which was a right. weird way to describe that. Uh, you've got Thelma who's who's letting loose. And right. you've got Louise who's kind of humoring her friend. Kind of being the man, yeah, you need to get away. I'll be your vessel to get away. Let's do this. Um, wants to have a good time, a bit more uptight, um, because she wants, she wants what she wants the vacation they planned, not just a good time. Um, and then the, uh, you have the inciting incident and Louise makes a decision that goes against their plan that propels them forward. And so as you go, when you hit the halfway point, um, Thelma's not caring at all. No, actually, no, Thelma, Thelma's a bit uptight. And then as she meets uh, Yeehaw Brad Pitt, she starts to loosen up a little bit uh, in multiple ways. Um, and then Louise is being more and more nervous, more and more nervous, more and more nervous. She meets her boyfriend and then everything comes to a i mean it's the point of no return the middle of act 2 where um they both have sex with their different partners and it goes really well for Louise only this time it seemed like it went really well for Thelma but now they have absolutely no money all of the money 
that Louise's boyfriend brought her is now gone. And so now he's going away and they have nothing. And they're still on the run from all of the government. And so now you see Thelma go from uh, I'm just letting loose to, you know what? Nothing matters anyway. And getting really, really courageous in that. And Louise kind of going to going from beginning of the movie Thelma to end of the movie Thelma in half the movie. Which works. So so why why do you like this movie so much? <laughs> uh like obviously like yeah. this story this structure is great. Like it's great. Why why specifically do you like this movie as much as you do? I think one of it what it I saw this movie I saw this movie right after or right around the same time as I watched um American graffiti. Okay. And uh one thing one thing I I noticed is uh a a a not a theme not a specific theme but like in, in American graffiti the the men are the men are pigs. Right. Um but it it glorifies that. Right. Um, not as not specifically like saying, hey, men should be sexual predators and objectify women. Um, like that's not the message, but it's very much glory days, good old boys, and it's not the it's not a very good portrayal of men or women. Um and then there's Thelma and Louise, which is saying men are pigs and so let's kill them. <laughs> Um, so I think for the first, the first time I watched it, it was refreshing. Cause I went from, Ooh, I am uncomfortable with this to, Hey, these men are getting what they deserve. Um, there's, there's like one good man yeah. in this movie and it's Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Which I'm just glad that finally Harvey Keitel gets to be the, the good guy. Like, I feel like every time you see him, he's like the corrupt cop or the pimp or whatever. It's like, man, Harvey Keitel got to be the one good guy in this movie. Mm-hmm. The only good um, guy. Yeah, I think I like it because, I mean, for one, it the, the stakes just naturally get higher and higher. Um, It feels natural as it's going. It feels like the characters are making decisions that generally make sense, Um, which always strikes a chord with me if that's a good thing i think that's a good thing striking a chord <laughs> it resonates i don't it, it 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 makes me happy when that happens in a movie um kind of like hush i feel like everything the character the lead does in hush is entirely justified yeah um, but it's i mean it's fun it's it's this it's these two best friends and they're like they're just their literal rider dies running right, away from the dies. cops, uh, sticking it to the man. Um, just growing in confidence and, uh, self-sufficiency. Um, it's a little, it's a little on the all men suck. Like, Personally, I don't believe all men suck, but as as a man, as a man, yes, as a man. Uh, so it's it's a little, it's a little screw all men, um, but also it feels consistent with their characters and their. It does, yeah. If it, it's justified, um, because of what they go through and how. They've been screwed over by men multiple times. So the problem with a lot of satire that's trying to poke at issues like this movie is poking at issues um, with misogynistic men 
is that it's too on the nose, it's too over the top, it's too blatant. The the kinds of things that the that the women in this movie experience are not um are are not so over the top that you think that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. There there were multiple times in this movie where it was like, oh, maybe this guy's actually gonna be a good guy. Nope, he's not. And every time that happens. So it's not just, you know, these over-the-top caricatures of these guys making them out to be terrible men. They're very reasonable, very, like, you know, it makes sense. Like, it's like, oh, they draw you in and that's how they get you. And it never feels like it, it's so fake that it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I think the most unrealistic character is the truck driver. Probably. But even then, I don't know any truck drivers that I know of. So Yeah. Maybe maybe that there could be an argument made for the husband being a little over the top. The husband, yeah, uh Daryl's um, a bit over the top, but who I is, think But he was my favorite performance in the movie. He's so fun. It and the and the reason that he works is because that actor committed 110 percent and killed it frankly like mm-hmm. his his role is he did amazing mm-hmm. but that's why his role works is it, that with a different actor with a lesser actor does not does not follow through yeah. he knew exactly what he was doing knew exactly what he was doing um seth you mentioned while or after watching this movie that you were surprised in a way that it's Ridley Scott. Yes. Yes. I was about to mention the same thing. I was, I want to talk about this. Yeah. When I think of Ridley Scott, a buddy crime drama slash comedy is not the first thing that I think of because I think, when I think of Ridley Scott, I think of Gladiator and The Martian and The Last Duel and Alien and these big, high concept, you know, elaborate productions, costume dramas. You know, his his last two movies were The Last Duel and House of Gucci. And the next thing he's working on is... A Napoleon movie. So his his MO, at least in my head, is big, high concept costume dramas. So the fact that he's tackling this buddy crime drama revenge movie about young women was was very surprising to me. I think but then also, like I, I looked at my wife at the end of it and just said, "Well, of course, Ridley Scott did this. Like Ridley Scott farts and a good movie comes out. <laughs> it's like Spielberg. Like Spiel. Like you're like, yeah. Like the post isn't a great Spielberg movie, but if anyone else made the post, we'd all be like a top ten classic. Um, I, I, and I wrote down, you know." really Scott's just like in this category of filmmaker like Spielberg or Scorsese who is just in a different league in the way that they can make a movie extremely well and extremely efficiently and just crank it out really Scott's 83 and he made he released two movies last year and that was partly impacted by the pandemic but he released two movies last year and he's releasing another one next year. Steven Spielberg's previous movie is nominated for Best Picture right now, as we record this. And will and he's gonna release another movie before the end of the year. And it'll probably be nominated for Best Picture as well. Depending on what it is. I, who knows? So that was my reasoning for being surprised about it being a Ridley Scott movie. 
you told me that you actually thought that it was very on brand for Ridley Scott. I did. I want to hear about this because I did not expect that. I definitely agree that the buddy movie feels very off for Ridley Scott. Like it feels almost like a low budget indie, almost like, like the kind of movie he did as a favor for somebody like, uh, like he had a buddy who, I guess, Kelly Corey. Uh, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know why he chose to do this movie, but I think, I think of really, when I think of Ridley Scott, yeah, I think of the same movies like Gladiator, Blade Runner, House of Gucci, Last Duel, Alien. Um, but, uh, and uh, until I saw The Last Duel, I would have absolutely agreed with you that this feels completely random. Uh, except Last Duel, Alien, Thelma and Louise have a similar not theme but something that they do in them and like looking through his filmography like gi jane he's got he's got more of these powerful confident independent female characters um uh not kind of like breaking against like like (laughs) tearing down the patriarchy characters <laughs> um and tearing down the patriarchy movies where like alien uh uh Sigourney Weaver's character is the one who was like hey we should not just br- let these people in without uh taking care of them in the airlock and then she has to take care of everything because the guys in a reasonably written way, the guys didn't cut it. Uh, uh, the last duel you have the customs of the day you have. So that are seen in the first two perspectives and then you have the last perspective, the woman's, which is done in it's all throughout for a lot of it, not all of it. Um, she does have agency, um, even in the 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 male biased perspectives. Um, she does have a bit more agency than a lot of women in period pieces like that typically have. Um, and then it, it also gives her voice at the end and it's, it's a commentary on, Hey, look at how many guy perspectives we hear all of the time. Let's listen to the women also. Um, especially when it's their story. Um, and so this, this does that, this, this takes like this, this would have been a, a guy buddy comedy, not necessarily comedy, but like this, this could have easily been two, two bros, um, robbing banks, robbing gas stations as they're driving about the country. But that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been interesting. That wouldn't have been anything. Um, but instead it's two women escaping the mundanity of their lives and then running from their life for their lives because bad things happened to them and they made decisions. And it's very much, uh, it's a cynical look at men, but it's not too unrealistic a look at men. Um, so I think, I think, Yes, it being a what would it what would come off as a lower budget buddy adventure drama satire is still a a female empowerment movie, which to me is very on brand for Ridley Scott. Very well said. I think 
I think that's a good place to end our conversation. So, you've been listening to Rewatch. This is the show about movies we love, movies we haven't seen yet. And my name is Seth Scruggs. You can find me online at Seth Scruggs. There'll be links in the show notes. Um, I'm on Instagram and Letterboxd. Zach, where can people find you? I can be found on Letterboxd at Zachary Vaughn and Instagram at Zachary is thinking. And next week, it's a musical week. Zach, one of your favorites. We were talking, we'll be talking about Tim Burton's adaptation of Sweeney Todd and Vincent Minnelli's An American in Paris. Very excited about that. I'll see you next week. See ya.